Welcome to the Sharon Fitzmaurice podcast. My guest today is Brian Penny. On October the 8th, 2013, Brian experienced his first day clean after 15 years of chronic heroin addiction. Instead of perceiving the addiction as a failure, Brian embraced a second chance at life and went to university to study the intricacies of human behavior. Since then, he has become a consultant to some of Ireland's largest companies, a final PhD student, a lecturer at Trinity College Dublin, a life change strategist, a radio presenter, and author of his recently published memoir, Bonus Time. So Brian, you're very welcome. I'm delighted to be here, Sharon. Thanks for having me. I've been I've been dying for this conversation because I had you on my radio show recently and I knew it was going to be a good conversation, but it blew me away. Like I listened to it three times. I honestly did. I've been telling everyone about it. So I, I won't use the word grilled, but I'm dying to hear your wisdom from the interviewer's perspective. So I'm really excited. Oh, well, God, I hope I don't let you down now, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, thank you for having me on uh, Mental Fitness um, wow. on Dublin City FM. It was, I had such great response from it and Amazing. a huge amount of people emailed me and contacted me afterwards. And I said that to you, I think, on the day that you interviewed and the same thing. That's why I would like to reciprocate this because I think the more that we share our stories, the more that we ch- share the knowledge and the wisdom that we have learned through our own experiences, the more other people will say, oh, well, maybe I can do that too. Maybe I can return to education. Maybe I can change my patterns and behaviors, even though I am this age or even though yeah. I have gone through whatever. So yeah, that's why I really think storytelling is very important, you know, and asking the hard questions and us having to answer the hard questions yes. at the time, isn't it? Yes, yes. And I always say, sometimes we don't have the answers, Brian. Sometimes we're just, it's from our experience or our perspective, but that doesn't make it right, you know, or the best thing to do. But it might just plant a seed so that people can see their own path. Yeah, and, and, and it's even, it mightn't be right for them right now, but maybe in five years' time, in 10 years' time, that seed was planted and it might work for them now. Like, I I probably heard the message lots of times, but I was, wasn't willing to listen while I was in addiction. But when I was ready, the message was there. And it's really, it's all about timing as well. Yeah, absolutely. And that's something I want to come back to again, you know, about that seed, you know, where that seed first was planted within you. But let's go right back, you know, and you've been very honest and forthcoming about your whole story. And I know that you experienced trauma in your you know, very, very early days of being born into this world. And really, for me, that had, I'm sure, a psychological effect, not only physical, but psychological effect on you, as I know from my own work and from working with people. It's something they may not be aware of. But would you like to tell our listeners about what you experienced (laughs) or what you were told about that experience from being born? Yeah, and it's it's interesting. I only found out about this when I was writing my memoir um, in 2019. I knew I had an operation as an infant, but as it turns out, I actually went under the knife without a general anesthetic. And basically, I, I came into the world with a condition known as intestinal malrotation. Basically, my intestines were twisted and I wasn't getting any nutrition into my body. Some, but very little. And my mom kept on going back to the doctor. She, The doctor was saying it's colic. She, was, she just knew. I think mother's instinct. Mm. Now, there's something else wrong here. She went back to the hospital and she was quite young. She would have been only 22, I think, when she had me. And she got the vibe. It was like, silly young mother. It's colic. Go away. That, was the, I, that would be the, the, the vibe she got. And she remembers sitting um, in the house 
house and she called the neighbor and says, like, something's really wrong. I feel like he's dying. And she was saying, I was just limp in her arms, just sort of fading, only a couple of weeks old. And she says, me nappies had gone completely bone dry at this stage. And she says, right, I'm going to the hospital. So she went in. She says, there's something wrong with me, baby. And the nurses were sort of annoyed at this stage. And they took me off my mother and he says, right, we'll weigh him. They weighed me. And I was actually half my birth weight. And they like, whoa, they took a good look at me then. And apparently the fontanelle in my head was beginning to sink. I wasn't getting any liquid into my body either. And they panicked. Like literally, my mom just remembers being in the corridor. Me whipped from her arms. She was left crying in the corridor. She came back and got her in police escort to Harcourt Street Hospital. I was given a very minimal chance of survival. Went under the operation. That's not even the bad part. The bad part that I found out was I went under the operation without a general anesthetic. And people may find this mind blowing because I did when I heard about it. But based on weak neurological evidence from the 1940s, it was only in 1985 that the medical practice realized that the infants experience pain like normal adults. So it was the practice that they didn't give them a general anesthetic. They gave them like a, a muscle relaxant to stop them squirming. And it was only when some mother uh, in 1985 realized that her infant went under the knife having heart surgery without a general anesthetic. She does this big public outcry and they were like, oh my God, what did we do? So from my experience has gone back to college, doing a PhD in psychology, I've learned basically I was conditioned to view the world as a painful place. I cried for the first 18 months of my life, like there was complications from the surgery. And um, like I would have just associated everything I heard, everything I seen in the world with the pain in my body. When I talk about this now, I still rub the scar on my stomach over 40 years later. Mm. So there's a little bit of I can touch it and I can feel it now. I can sit with it now. But for years, I couldn't. And my anxiety, which drove me into a world of addiction, I believe, like I never got the anesthetic as a kid. I found it at 17 in the shape of heroin. But my anxiety that drove me down that road of agitation and worry and concern and fear was all grounded in bodily sensations. Like I was afraid of my heartbeat, my pulse and my breath. I remember the first time being told about mindfulness, focus on your breath. And I was like, I'm afraid of my breath. <laughs> like this in a <laughs> detox facility. So it really set the tone for me, primed me for a life and anxiety and then very loving parents but alcoholic parents which didn't really help as well I had a lot of struggles with that as a kid I was primed as a warrior and I remember seeing them drinking drink driving and I was always thinking they were going to die and it really just set the stage for me to to need something to anesthetize my overactive brain mm, wow my goodness and it's amazing how finding that out though Brian has helped you kind of understand maybe where that anxiety you know started and that fear and that fear but what really am um, I listening to you is and again this would be with children is the physical you know painful experience because they don't they can't emotionally express how they feel yeah. they don't have that thought process but the physical pain that you felt you know and even though as you said you wanted to relieve that pain in some way and as a child that pain wasn't relieved for you it wasn't the operation but again you held on to the trauma within you know I always talk about cellular memory within our yeah. physical bodies it's huge so yeah. some people aren't aware or could be you know a shock that it might have had to go through a traumatic event like you did as a baby thinking there's no anesthetic it's crazy now when you think about it Brian yeah. isn't it that as yeah. a baby that you had to suffer that and again, even I always say um, our parents or caregivers, they, of course, go along with the information and the awareness they have at the time and the doctors. But thank God they know better now. 
Yeah, and it's so interesting you say that as well. Like, there's some great books out there as well. Like, the body keeps the score. I love that. The body keeps the score. Like, so people think, oh, you don't remember that as a kid. So why is it a problem? But that's just the psychological, and mental side. Like, it's conditioned. It's cellular memory. I've never heard mm-hmm. that term before, yeah. and I love that cellular memory. But even to make it relatable to other people, like if you are socially anxious or you're doing a presentation or something like that, you're not remembering every single event that led up to that to make you anxious. It's in your body. It's 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 a visceral response yeah. from past learnings and the, the the psychology and the science behind this is really robust like so it's yeah. it's 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 all true yeah yeah it's amazing and i think even you know saying that out loud to people you know that they may have more of an understanding now how you came about you know to get into the addictive behavior you know and what was causing it and what it led to for you down the road but how you could also change you know that's very important But if we go back again, you know, to um, young Brian and you growing up, what did you dream about becoming as a child, Brian? Despite my uh, agitation and excessive worrying and anxiety, um, I had big dreams. I, I, I was quite academic as a kid. I was good in school. Um, I was not, I was, I was not, no, I wasn't the, the, the most the best schools in the world per se. And I wasn't, it was a very disadvantaged area. So there wasn't the best footballers around, but I was always top of my class. I was good at football. I would have been the best in the area of football. And I wanted to be a professional footballer. Um, that, that was my core aim. And when I went to another school, St. Declan's, a secondary school, I seen the bar was raised. Oh, I wasn't the best footballer in the world. I was mm-hmm. out with my little ladies well bubble. Mm-hmm. And um, it was an interesting experience, but I still thought it was going to be I could have had a chance of making it in football in hindsight. Maybe I didn't, but I was good, but I, I had an injury. I had an injury at 16 that started to put, put, put that to bed anyway. But I'd always, there was great moments within the anxiety, lovely holidays with my family members and stuff as well. And I always had a positive outset because I didn't realize I was struggling with anxiety and because the language wasn't there and everyone else wasn't struggling. I thought this was the way you were. Mm. And when I was playing football, I wasn't anxious. There was other elements of it as well, but it was just this underlying, unrelenting fear, worry and anxiety that was very context dependent. Like when my parents were drinking, it would ramp up to all kinds of levels. When I was thinking about bodily sensations, it would ramp up to other levels, but there was good areas around that and I had incredible self-belief about what I would achieve in my life mm. and it's um yeah it was an interesting one I, I remember one time fighting with my mom because my mom wouldn't have much confidence in herself like she'd be open about that as well mm. and she'd often say use her name like the, 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 the name and the bloodline as a, we, we won't amount to anything kind of thing mm. and I remember as a 15 I was about 15 or 16 it's the only time I remember really crying as a teenager and I was saying to my mom don't you dare put me mm. in that in, in, in that boat says Mm -hmm. I can be wherever I want to be and I went and proved her yes absolutely (laughs) I got there in the end I got there you did (laughs) but isn't it amazing how you had that belief you know and that even though you had the crooks on the road we'll call it that you still had that belief from a very young age and you sidetracked a little bit but even coming out of it that belief was still there so that goes to show Brian you know and I'm always saying this to people as well it doesn't matter what your childhood or your upbringing was like you know that you can still find something within yourself even as that young person especially as we become teenagers because we start to pull away that's part of our natural development to pull away from those caregivers or parents that maybe you felt didn't have the awareness or the understanding or they weren't giving you the security that you needed as a young child as you said waiting for them to come home you know and the drinking and all of that really wanted to feel safe 
So there was a part of you that didn't feel safe in, was it in all environments? Because it's interesting to hear you say that even when you were playing football, that the anxiety wasn't there. You were involved in an activity that was taking over part of the brain that was so, you know, focused on what you were doing. Yeah. When you think about it then, when you were in that, when you were at home or you were waiting for your parents to come home, of course, hear that fear just rose its head again for you. Did you ever think about that? Did you think about there were situations or places or people you were with that you felt safe and others you didn't feel so safe? Yeah, it's interesting you said that. I've never thought about that before. Uh, and interestingly enough, one of, one of my strengths as a footballer would be that like, I wouldn't have been the biggest, but I would put my foot in anywhere. I would go through people. There was no fear or anxiety around that. I was very, very physical player as yeah. well. So there was definitely no fear in that context. And then I would have felt very safe, especially around my family and my extended family with me, Aunt Tess. She passed away there two years ago for cancer, but she was the, the hugger of the family. Mm. Like there was a there was a distinct lack of affection in my family as well. I was very much my mom's way, her love language for our kids, I suppose, way of saying it would have been like she she we there was always going to be dinner on the table yeah. and we could have whatever we not whatever we wanted we could have fish fingers or eggs she'd give us the yeah. choice of the options like yeah. she was really good that way we always very secure from that perspective and lots of good stuff there but i don't think the supports the parental supports because they didn't have it either i'd never mm. blame my parents like they left school at 13 but i think there was a lack of uh, affection in the family as well we we don't do hugs i'm a i'm a big hugger now mm. but we didn't do hugs and i i had uh, johan harry on my radio show recently and he's a great speaker on addiction and he says sobriety is not the opposite of addiction connection is mm. and i love that and i had a disconnection i wasn't really connected with my family in terms of affection and stuff like that and I was disconnected with my body the mind body connect I couldn't be as connected with my body if scared the hell out of me so I went up to my head and yeah. said I live up here it's a lot easier to live up here because my body is, is, is I'm afraid of my body so it was really interesting but there was moments of safety and belonging with my family as well in certain mm. contexts when they weren't drinking to our lovely parents like I do it was definitely there the love was always there but it wasn't an affectionate love. And it's only since I've met my girlfriend and she was like, oh, that's really sad. Mm. And it made me emotional and thinking, wow, like imagine if I got hugged mm. as a kid, would it have made the difference? So uh, yeah. that was definitely missing as well. Yeah. And that for me as well, kind of links in, you know, because you experienced that physical pain, you know, as parents and because I'm a parent, you know, even if you just rub it, it might be a scratch on the knee, but you rub it or kiss it better and hug them the child automatically feels safe and that it's nearly better, even though it could be still bleeding. Yeah. But that security. So that kind of brings to mind for you, you didn't have that physical connection or that physical security. And again, you know, your parents are like many parents where there wasn't the hugs or the I love you's. It was yes. here dinner. They were great providers. They did yeah. everything they had to do, but they weren't able to maybe show that emotional response that you needed physically to feel secure or safe, yeah. but that you found it. Or did you find it, Brian? <laughs> I did find it. I did find it. Now, I have to say, me mom wouldn't be still much of a hugger. It's, and and yeah. it'd, be, it'd be her experiences back in the years as well. There's a great little story my sister tells that uh, my sister like uh, has two little, me two little nephews. I love them to bits. Oh, I saw them. They're gorgeous. They're gorgeous. gorgeous. I only had them on a, on a, on a sleepover the other day. We had oh. such good fun. But um, I think me, Ollie, Ollie's six now. But when he was two years of age, um, like my sister has 
hug them to death. Like she's literally over hugged them, you know, that way. And one time my mom was leaving the house and she went to give give me to your two-year-old nephew or grandchild a handshake. And my sister says, don't you dare give him a hug. And it's (laughs) out in the open. We talk about it now. But I still wouldn't hug my mom. It's not something we do. I'd hug my sister the odd time. I'd hug my brother the odd time. But it's only like in really certain areas. Like I hug people I don't know that well much more Mm -hmm. than I hug my family because... It's very hard to change that condition and it just feels weird for us because it's yeah. been built on layers and layers and layers. But in saying that, like I I basically like they say addiction is not a spectator sport. Eventually the whole family get to play. And yeah. I brought my whole family into the doldrums. I really did. I caused a lot of pain and hurt there. But recovery isn't a spectator sport either and we have great conversations there's great love there's great connection we still don't go hugging each other like the Brady Mm. Bunch or anything like that yeah yeah there's great connection on another level there and it's 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 we're in a great place as a family right now and I have my girlfriend is like the uh, hugging machine so uh, I have that connection in my life and me two little nephews I hug them to that too (laughs) that's lovely and you know talking about your family and again, as I said, we're not judging them and you're not blaming them. That's just the way no, it was. Yeah. But what really, um, I suppose, got to me when T.G. Catter did the documentary wow, yeah. on your life. And I just thought it was amazing. And I know I responded to one of your posts you had up about it. And I said how it was so raw. It was very emotional watching the family, because usually it's about the person that has experienced the trauma and what we've gone through in Ladida. But I always say there is the other people around you that, as you said, are watching on, they're trying to support you. Sometimes they don't want you in their lives anymore. And your family were very open and honest, you know, and I love the way they didn't sugarcoat anything. They were Not like, at all. Straight out. And I, I, for a moment, I felt for you while I was watching it <laughs> because I thought, oh, God, you know, did Brian expect it to be this way or, you know, what way? And then I let go of that because, but it was really true to life you know yes going through the addiction your family trying to support you and then wanting to get rid of you just wanting you to leave and die yeah. they well, how he does yeah yeah because yeah. the pain for them was yeah. you know even though they didn't understand completely what you were going through on that side but i just thought it was so open and i thought Gigi Carr did an amazing job in the documentary i just thought it was so powerful and that your story, you know, from that young boy, you know, and again, you talk about, you know, when you took that first hit of heroin, it was like falling in love for the first time. Yeah. Wow. Like I, I dedicated a whole uh, chapter of my book called Falling in Love to my first time doing heroin. And I describe it. It was like a, like a temptress. So like talking to me that nice, keep me close. I will protect you. I describe it as like a soft, warm blanket just wrapped around my soul. It took anxiety away. It took bodily sensations away. It took fear away. It took thinking away. And I'm not telling people to do heroin. It will soon, it took me to heaven that night. It will soon take you to hell. It took me to 18 years of hell. But it just gave me something. I remember thinking, this is nirvana on earth. And my self-belief and my my fierce belief that I will amount to something that I could never be an addict, the self-delusion, mm-hmm. um, gave me the belief that I could do heroin once a week, twice a week maybe, but not get addicted like the other addicts in inverted commas. And this self-delusion, like we chatted about it before the podcast, like there's a thin line between self-delusion and self-belief. And I crossed that line massively and I became a black belt in self-deception. And that's when I began hurting my family. Um, and 
I didn't do, I did, like, I didn't go robbing my family. I never done anything. I didn't cause physical pain. I didn't rob them. Um, I probably took a few quid here and there, like yeah. 20, 50 pences as a kid. I, I lot, yeah. robbed a lot of 50 pences as a kid. I definitely had that. <laughs> I lied, but it was the relentless nature of me destroying myself and then bringing me mom on a drug deal she didn't even know was a drug deal, bringing me sister on drug deals where I was selling drugs just to get to get me get me habit. So I brought them in terrible ways. Me as you know from the documentary as well, my mom's house got burnt down as well, the front mm-hmm. of it over me so I had to move out soon after that so I did there, there was a few bad scars in, ter- in terms of that as well so um, and, and I can fully understand their pain I think the TV for a documentary probably got a slightly askew they definitely captured the raw reality of it but they wouldn't be me family wouldn't be as hard on me as the documentary showed like no. I think there's only 40 minutes and we had 80 hours of coverage so they really had to get it in there so um when I was watching it myself I was like oh my god it was a bit of a surprise it was different from the preview I see yeah. were you but shocked Brian I yeah. was a little bit yeah. I don't get I, I, anxiety drove my whole addiction Sharon and I always say this I have a wonderful relationship with anxiety today anxiety comes in anxiety goes but I was actually anxious watching it. I was holding my girlfriend's hand and my hand was sweating. Like I was like, oh my God, it was, it was emotional. It really was. And it's, I'd gone through interviewing my family, interviewing, chatting to my family about the book and stuff like that. And I'd realized the pain that I caused and I was really cut off my emotions and I, I hadn't got the, the tool, the perspective taken tool either. Like I didn't take people's perspective. I, I needed drugs now to heal my pain. Mm-hmm. End of story. That was my life. That was my world. I couldn't cope. It was me, 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 me. That's the essence of addiction. It's a very self-centered uh, thing. Mm-hmm. So I didn't practice perspective taking skills. I, I, I was probably thinking, yeah, where, uh, what's that drug dealer thinking? If he's going to be at this time, that's me. That's where I use yeah. perspective taking skills. And I certainly, for a couple of years when I got clean, I couldn't actually, I began intellectually taking the perspective of others, but I I wasn't emotionally feeling it. I was lacking. I was still disconnected from that. So it was when I was writing the book that I really began feeling the pain that I caused my family. And over the last two years, especially, it's really hit home. And I've just become much fuller, much more fulfilled, much deeper. And I don't dwell in the past. I don't feel guilt because if I feel guilt and I dwell there, I'm not going to be helping them in the present. So I have a full understanding around that. But I fully immersed myself in the pain that I caused. And it was funny, a couple of people have asked me, like when your sister says you wish she had died, does that hurt you? And I says, it doesn't really. I mean, sister asked me this as well. And I said, it doesn't really, I completely understand it mm. because I was better off that. It was better for me. It was better for them mm. on an intellectual level. They had no idea that I was going to have this shift in perspective and go on to do what I'm doing now. So it's um, it, it's a gr- it's great that that happened, but I totally understand it as well. And we, we have a lo- I think the fact we have a lovely relationship today, all of us, I think that tempers everything that was said in that documentary as well. Absolutely. And I didn't take anything bad away from yeah, it you know yeah. I just felt like it was very raw in the yeah, fact real. that it, it, yes real very and real. it gave your family an opportunity to speak whereas sometimes the family don't get yeah. an opportunity to speak yeah. and it shows that your parents weren't battering you around the place you know yeah. and that you were fed every day of course yeah. they had their own issues same as every parent Everybody, no matter what's going on yeah. in life but it showed you know for me a real family you know yeah. and you know and you know from you know all the research you've done in addiction even that there is families out there and sometimes they have to give up on the person in their family that is the addict. 
100 100 and, and the funny thing is i wouldn't change a thing about that documentary as well i think it really helped people i got like i i talked about drug driving drink driving selling drugs causing all kinds of pain like no it was no holds barred and i'd say sharon i i probably across all different platforms and email at through my website i probably got three thousand messages like an incredible amount of messages mm-hmm. and none of them not one was negative yeah. and i think that says a lot for the human race like because yeah. i talk about bad stuff but i think the authenticity of my family it was no holds barred we put everything out there so i don't think people could rip me down because like i put it out there like i i i, I owned it and our family owned it as well but i think it says a lot about human beings that if you put yourself out there they're there to lift you back up you know absolutely i think that's so true and it's been your authentic self as well and your family as you said being so authentic you know not yeah. the frills on it and so when you look at that now you know i know you've probably been asked this a hundred times but you look at that and how you got your second chance and we'll go that into, into that in a moment but then you see other people that are you know still addicts you know and they are living through the hell that you are speaking or you spoke about when you were going through it how do you feel you know how do you feel walking past somebody that is somebody's son or brother like you were and everyone looks at them like they're a piece of dirt on the road and they want to avoid them and they you know just go they're just a drug addict they don't see them as anything else whereas I would always look at every human being no matter what their circumstances are and say you know well they are they belong to somebody's family you know or they belong somewhere at some time in their life they weren't born a drug addict yeah 100 percent. there's one story that really jumps out at me with that Sharon there was a guy in uh, Mountjoy prison and he was doing a mindfulness meditation and uh, the, the, the people doing the meditation were telling him close your eyes and breathe and he says I can't close my eyes and breathe when people are around mm-hmm. and he says why and he says I was sexually abused as a kid and it brings mm-hmm. back all their memories mm-hmm. so he was locked up for drugs <laughs> he was locked up for drugs and he should have been getting psychiatric help so he was doing drugs that help with the sexual abuse that was that he mm-hmm. experienced as a child he was taking drugs to get away from that emotional and mental torture. He got caught taking drugs and then he's put into a prison, which is a predictor, which is like more pain to make him more of an addict. Mm. Like it's absolutely crazy. Like pain makes you use. There's no addict out there that wants to be an addict. Like mm. who wants to be a junkie? And There's a story and there's a human being behind every single addict. And when I walk past them and like everyone else, like if I become emotionally invested in every person I walk past on the streets, it's going to kill me. Yeah. So you do have to detach from it from, from a perspective as well. I remember reading Anthony DeMello's book. I'm a big fan of his mm. work and he's done a lot of, uh, he's done a lot of work with addicts in Ireland mm. uh, as it happens. And he was saying like, compassion is hard. Sometimes you have to leave the addict in the ditch because when they wake up, they know they were in a ditch. If you take them out of the ditch and put them in a bed, they'll wake up and think everything's okay. So enabling can kick in there as well. So compassion can be actually hard because if you're oversensitive, you won't be able to look after yourself. But how I feel, it gets me sometimes, and, and especially with my best mate who was in the depths mm-hmm. with me and he's still on the streets now. And I met him there recently at Christmas and I just felt so helpless. There's nothing I can do. I feel I have the solution for me but I don't mm. have the solution for him so I think helpless would be the big word and then just to give me time like there's only so many hours in the day so I try to do courses I've done courses around unlocking the secrets of addiction recovery I give it to anyone for free if anyone's mm. listened to this and they look for it give me an email through my website 
it's brianpenny.com and I will give you access, free access to the course. So I try to do as much as I can on a group level, but being helpless is the core part. If I'm speaking to someone in addiction, I will listen to them. If I'm there and I'm in that space, I'll try to listen to them. But um, the main thing with people, if you're, you know someone that's struggling in addiction, you've got to look after yourself and then when they need help, you'll be in a position of strength to help them out where you cannot make them seek health, help. That's the unfortunate truth. Yeah, because they have to be ready you know, or they have to yeah. go to the level that you got to, Brian, you know, to realize, yeah. you know, this is a second chance. I better take it, you know. So, yeah. you know, and I again, I love that honesty, you know, that we feel helpless, you know, that you feel helpless because sometimes I feel like that. And I feel like, you know, I'd like to help everybody. But again, we can't make a million pieces of ourselves and we have to spread the message the best way we can and whoever wants to pick up that message will and they'll make a change in their lives and others won't so yes I would say to any families or friends listening out there as Brian has said let them know you're there to support them give them you know brochures and numbers of you know organizations that can help them that can support them professionally because sometimes the family the emotional attachment is very hard as your family had witnessed going through your addiction Brian yeah and I think one one thing I think that is, is a really nice piece to add to that as well would be if they're willing to speak be there as the listener the active listener not ready to respond but just to understand and let like there's only one goal in that is to let them feel heard and what happens then even if they're not willing to change like you will be only dying to tell them what to do because mm. we have all the answers that's what that's what we think that's what we think all the time yeah. like when someone when someone's in the dredges like that you think oh you might have the answer for you but you don't have it for them because they're in a different space so just purely listen as the active listener to understand and then they're more willing to come back when they are seeking for help mm. so you're opening up your arms for future opportunities and for my brother James when I got clean I just tried to preach to him to tell him what to do because mm. he was in the depths of addiction but then I ended up having to back off look after myself and then when yeah. he was in a position to look for help he came yeah. to me saw help and he's two and a half years clean now so that, oh. that that's that's how it works you know fair play to him and I love that as well and I'm smiling because I often hear that you know people say well I'm doing this and why can't yeah. they do it and I'm going <laughs> they didn't decide to do it or choose to do it you've chosen to do yeah. it off you go you can lead the way and if they follow great but if they don't you can't be dragging them after you they'll come when they are ready ready this is it it's so yeah. true yeah and I do like that because some people say but they know it's good for them and I'm going maybe they don't know just yet (laughs) yeah there's a great line again from Anthony DeMello and he says that about the addict the addict knows that the drugs are killing but he's not aware once you come up become aware you can't help but change Mm. and when I got clean and detox and I had that awakening experience whatever you want to call it I was nearly like why didn't anyone tell me (laughs) yeah (laughs) even if they did you would have went right (laughs) they were telling me for years but I couldn't listen not that I didn't listen I couldn't listen the addictive eagle that shield I put up around that armor would just would not let anything in but once I became aware change was just inevitable so knowledge is not the key awareness is the key and I think listen the people might open up that awareness space absolutely and again you know with awareness is you're only aware when you're aware you know yeah and I say that to people you know some people are not in that space yet and that's okay so you share what you can like we're sharing today and it's as I said it may plant a little seed for people Brian and that's the most important thing I believe so we'll go to your second chance so you were in the hospital, you can lead up in a minute, but you were in the hospital and I want to hear about the red fire hydrant. 
Yeah, yeah. So that was a crazy experience. So <clears throat> what preceded that in the day, that was like, uh, it was I, I, I finally decided I needed to get clean. I'd, I'd gone to the ends of the earth. Nothing was working. I lost everything. Everything in my life was gone. And I decided to try to get clean. And I had, um, I was told I couldn't get into a detox facility because of benzos in my system. I had to wait eight weeks and another four weeks, but I was dying. I was lit. My body was giving up and I said, I need to get clean now. And I tried to do a home detox and I ended up biting my tongue down the center, splitting my tongue, blood everywhere. My poor brother, James, the one, the guy that's now yeah. clean, rang me dad. I think Brian's dead, screaming, crying. He, I'm sure you've seen James yeah. uh, describing that on the TV show. <clears throat> my, my sister came up. She was coming into the door, blue lights, ambulance lights flashing. She just thought it was going to be in a body bag. Thankfully, I survived. Mm -hmm. And I ended up in the hospital that night. And I remember just being broken, just broken in every way possible. I was going through the depths of withdrawal. It was, it was a horrific experience. And my tongue was horrifically painful as well. Yeah. But I remember started trying to pull myself off the trolley. And my eyes just fixated on this red fire extinguisher hanging on the wall. And I remember looking at it. I was like, it was like I was just in this trance looking at this mm. fire extinguisher. And I says, that's that's the color red. And I, it's like I tried to name it and I couldn't name it. That's mm. the color, that's a red. And I couldn't, it was like my memory or my verbal world was just broken. And I remember looking around the rest of the room. It was like nothing made sense. It was just a wash of confusion and words didn't make sense. And I remember just thinking, oh my God, that's really weird. I have, that's brain damage. I'm brain damage, done, game over. Now coming back from this, you're brain damaged. And I was waiting for that panic and anxiety that chased me entire life. I was waiting for it just overwhelm me, like sort of like, oh my God, what's going to happen now? And I remember just sort of leaning back on the trolley and saying, I am done. You win. I can't fight this anymore. I give up. Done with this white flag raised. And I remember this sense of calm and peace coming over me. It was the first time in my life that I surrendered to life. Mm stopped resisting the reality stopped resisting reality i stopped fighting with my own mind and that was just a huge upper that, that was the that was the moment i believe that my life began to change wow i love that word you surrendered yeah you know and i'm often saying that to people who are fighting and fighting against things and sometimes just to surrender in that moment that's when you will find the calm and peace and then you will find clarity what did you feel, you know, apart from all those physical sensations and the thoughts, but what did you feel emotionally in that time? Can you remember, Brian? It was, uh, I'd say, I don't know if I've been asked this before, but I was awash with so many intense physical sensations and um, between me melt, the anxiety, the, the anxiety of like the physical anxiety. Mm. I felt like electricity in my body because it was coming off the benzos, but all I would say, I don't think the emotions would have been sort of um, lost in the wash of those mm. intense feelings, but there was this sense of calm within that. Mm. And I remember there was a sense of awe within that as well. Mm. It was like, wow, what's this? How do I feel calm? There's something very weird going on here. But then I think that was taken away pretty quick. And I was just like, I was just sort of lost in that environment. Like it was a very intense kind of environment. Mm. And, and, and it was really only like, I, I spent another four weeks. I spent the next four weeks. I got out of hospital the next day. I was at, I went at home and I spent the next four weeks lying on my couch. I didn't go to bed for four weeks. I had another couple of seizures, another couple of hospital visits, but there was something, it broke me down to the core. Like it literally like reprogrammed me or something like that. I was mm. literally just broke. I couldn't even hold my phone. I had to make a phone call at one stage and I couldn't squeeze the phone with my hand. So it just like broke me down completely. And it was only when I went to the actual detox to get off opiates then, because that was just a benzo detox. I went to get off an opiate detox 
and I was getting strength back into my body. And I, it was the first time I was introduced to mindfulness, to mm. self-awareness, to psychology. And I began reading all these books. I was like, where have these been all my life? <laughs> and I was this energy coming into my life. And I remember the emotions that I would describe there was just joy and happiness and relief and, and, and gratitude. And just like, yeah, it was just, it was crazy. I remember there was like a whisper in my mind. Wow, you might have a life again. How lucky are you? That was the, wow. that was the overriding emotion yeah. that went with it. Yeah. Wow. What an amazing second chance, Brian, you yeah. know, and even sitting here today, you know, and thinking about it, it's not everyone that gets that opportunity or no. that second chance. No. And that for me, it's nearly like a rebirth for you. It's nearly like you were reborn into the Brian that you really wanted to truly be you know, from yeah. that young child and yeah. to live your dreams. And now you had a chance to do it. And by God, you really have <laughs> brought <laughs> it to life, you know, in the last few years, which is just fantastic. So you um, went on to college and tell us about that. You're quite competitive, Brian. I am. You know, and, you spoke, <laughs> and that's why I was interested even as a child. You're, you are quite competitive, you know, and that's something probably that's just within you, you know, so you never lost that. No. So you went to college and what I thought was very interesting, you said you were always quite good at school. Um, but when I heard you in another interview, you were talking about um, your assignments or wh whatever your projects that you had to do and that you did them a different way to everybody else. Tell us about that. Yeah, it's it's interesting. It is. I, I think I was being the mature student as well. And like, uh, I, I believe I, I've, I was given a second chance of life. I truly do. And I, I, that's why my book is called Bonus Time. I feel like I'm living on bonus time. And that is like, I'm not comparing myself to others. I'm not worrying about what other people think. I do things my way. I take risks, laugh at rejection, all these kinds of things that held me back in the past. And I think this shift in perspective has given me just a different way of, of operating because I'm not worrying about what others think. So I remember I went in for the assignments and all the students were so worried and so stressed out doing the assignments. And I'm like, look, just do what's needed. Like we'd start the whole module and I'd say, right, what do we need to do? Continued assessment, right? So this is the topics, this is the question, this is what I need to know, right? Everything else is, it mm, doesn't matter. So I'd literally go and do that. And I wouldn't go to the classes. And I remember one lecturer actually says, he doesn't even come to the classes. And I was getting all these deadly results. And like, I was I, like, not, not the boast, but I was getting A1s and mostly mm. everything because I started to realize the system. I started with, it was a great habit from Stephen Covey's book, start with an end goal in mind. And I says, right, the end goal is to get a grade in that module. So what did I need to do? And I just dismissed everything else because it wasn't required unless I was interested in the topic. Mm. There was lots of extracurricular stuff I was doing that I was interested in, but I wasn't going to sit in a lecture for two hours learning about cognitive neuroscience, about the ear and something that I just had no interest in about phonemes. I actually <laughs> went and sat through them. I think that's when I made the decision. I don't hear about phonemes anymore and pigeon languages and stuff like that. Yeah. So I just done what I needed to do. And, and really, I remember just, uh, it, it, was, it was sort of just working out the strategy of that, of what they actually wanted. Like, I went into the lectures and I annoyed the hell out. I'm like, I says, what do you want? What are you looking for? And I've done this over and over again. And when I pulled it out of them in the end, I don't even know if they had the answers, but I went in so many times pulling out the answers. What you were really looking for was critical, a critical a critique of a subject, which means benefits and cons of both sides. So I'd pick a topic, do that. And I just found a formula to do that. And I remember telling and all the students this is what they're looking for you just have to do this why are you doing all this extra stuff and mm. stressing yourself out and they just couldn't let go and I sort of used that formula right the way through of just the, 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 doing the not the bare essentials 
I do, do the bare essentials, but do them at, at a high level mm. and really dig deep on them. And that's something that just really worked out in my favor. And I ended up getting like best thesis, top of the class. I got a scholarship for Trinity, which was worth a hundred thousand euros. So that's how I got to do my PhD. So it, it had massive benefits in the end. Wow. And so you kind of do stick to your guns. So it's when you get fixated on something, yeah. <laughs> you, you follow through with it. Yeah. It's, it's funny you say competitive. I'd be very, very competitive, uh, but it's not, it's not like I, I compete against my former self, right? I'm going to be who I was yesterday. Cause I remember it was interesting. What I used to do in the, in the cars and I wanted to get top of the class so I could get the scholarship. It was the biggest predictor of a scholarship was yeah. top of the class, funnily enough. But I would do me, I would do me assignment. I'd have it a week in advance of the thing and I'd give it to other students. And they were so afraid. They were so afraid of plagiarism. I used to call it advanced plagiarism. I had a system for it. Literally they want what's out there. You don't make up your own stuff. You give them what's out there. You write it in your own words and give it back. Like, they say is that not plagiarism and I says well if they can catch me for plagiarism fair play then this is advanced <laughs> this is advanced plagiarism that they will not be able to find which is academic writing so I just yeah. found the code like my biggest fear um, when I started college was that I couldn't write I struggled with text messages and emails mm -hmm. so I sort of learned from the bottom up I read a book learn how to write like mm -hmm. I, I literally read that book how to write and done it from the bottom up and, and, and there's a lot of great things can happen if you start from the bottom up and, and, and go from there and that, that was a big advantage for me yeah, amazing. Yeah, and I love the fact that you said you were trying to share this strategy with others, but they were going, no, we have to stick by the system, you yeah, know. Yeah, the system, the system. Yeah. So uh, one of my life lessons was society's rules do not apply. When everyone zigs, sometimes it's best to zag. And yeah. that served me very well. Yeah, and I think really what it is, is to, you said it there, you know, to have an end goal in mind and follow yeah. that vision and do what suits you, do what you're best at and to do it well, you know, yeah. so I would say that to, again to any young person, you know, that's going forward and they're not sure, but what is your end goal? What would you like to do eventually? What would you like to achieve? And then find ways to do that along the way. And it may not be always the way that society is telling us to do it. <laughs> yeah, and then, and then sometimes as well, if you don't know where you want to go, well, the only wrong thing to do is do nothing. So just act. It mightn't be the direction you want to go in, but just try to keep on, like maybe it's, it's point A to point B, but maybe you have to go in a million different directions before mm. you find the goal. Like action will, like if you're in doubt, act. That is the yeah. thing to do because the only thing you shouldn't do is just sit with that doubt, sit with that procrastination, take an action, go there and then reevaluate. I think that's the key. Yeah, absolutely. And I always say there's never any kind of wasted experience, even the experience of being a heroin addict. You've learned so much from that experience. So yeah. You know, now a lot of your work is based on that and your research, all of those things, what led you on to mindfulness, all of the practices now. So I always say nothing is ever wasted in our lives. So if you say, I'm not quite sure right now, go, as you said, take action, do something, you know, enjoy it while you're doing it. Yeah. It may not be the end goal, but it's leading you on that step because every time you achieve something, you feel better about yourself. You feel more confident. And that kind of shows in what you did. You had that end goal. And I love the fact that you said, you know, I just wanted to get there. And what it was leading to was the scholarship was absolutely massive and well done to you. And thanks, Sharon. But it's even interesting as well. So for so many years, like I'm, I'm seven and a half years in recovery now, I would say for four, four, maybe five of them years, I wanted to be an academic. 
that was my PA point. That was, that was the end game. I don't want to be an academic anymore. I'm writing on my PhD at the moment. I'll sh- hopefully have my PhD um, awarded in the summer, but I'm stepping away from academia. So I'm on a new path now. Yeah. So sometimes you have to get to B before you get to C and before yeah. you get to D. God, who knows where it's going to take you? So yeah. it's, all, it's all about the journey. There's no destination, really. It's all about the journey. Yeah, absolutely. I love it. I think we learn so much along the way, Brian, don't we? Big time, you know, and big the fact time. that you thought, yeah, I wanted to be this. And now it's changing as you've gone along. And I love that. And I think it will change. You know, my mother went back to college at 58. Wow. Amazing. You know, and she did archaeology in English and wow. in NUIG. And she laughs when she thinks about it going back with all these 17 year olds. Yeah. But she was a great mentor to them because she had life experience. She may have not had the academic side because she had yeah. left school like many of her generation at 14. But she took that step and that was huge for her, you know, to go back into this school environment, college environment yeah. and feel like I'm out of place, but suddenly realized well, I kind of know a little bit more than the rest of these young ones around me. Yeah. And she found her way and she she's amazing. So I always say she's kind of been my inspiration and in looking and saying we can do anything at any age at any time. We really can. And there's something else. I'm thinking of anyone listening out there that might be thinking to go back to college. Because I think when I'm talking about oh, scholarship and all that kind of stuff, it can seem a bit, they probably think I'm mad intelligent or something like that. But I would, you are, Brian. Anytime I bring this up, I remember Sheila showing, ah, you're very smart. I says, I'm not that smart, Sheila. I mean, IQ does not say it. Yeah. Like, it's not lying. But yeah. I remember because we done IQ testing in the psychology year and there was so many people like off the chart smart, 600 or 550 points, really smart people. But they were following society's rules. So it was two two things that I done. I didn't follow the rules. I done what worked. I started with an goal in mind. I knew what I I knew what I wanted. Yeah. And but I also put the hard work in. I think yes. they say genius is ten thousand hours. If you put the hard work in, and what happens then is what, what I find now it's it, the hard work compounds over time. It's like a snowball rolling down the hill. It gets bigger and bigger and bigger. You learn new ideas. Then mm. new ideas help you with other ideas. It becomes meta learning. You learn how to learn. Mm. that compounding effect from hard work and learning is beats iq and smarts every day of the week so i probably wouldn't have been the smartest in the class not by a long shot but the strategy so for any mature students going back to college around like that there's other ways of getting where you want to go i think you might be giving lectures on how to have the best tactics to do their assignments i, I, I would love that i would love that yeah that, that might be, cool. be i think a workshop to do brian i think you would have many students going to help me <laughs> Good idea. That's at the plan. Yeah. There's a seed. There's a seed plan. Yeah. I tell you what, because as you said, there is ways there we've been told this is the way to do it. But I always say, well, there has to be another way because life experience teaches us there's always another way. And if people are struggling and they have that fear of going back to education or trying something new, leaving the job they've been in for 20 years when they hate it, but that fear of what what next, you know, there is another way. Just take a little step, maybe go and do an evening course, you know, and again, it's to build your confidence as well, isn't it? And say, God, I can kind of do this. It's not that bad. And Brian Penny did it. (laughs) <laughs> I, I had to do an access course, uh, Sharon, as well. Like yeah. I, I remember I done the interview to get into Minuti University and he says, we're going to put you do a full year because uh, we don't think you'd be able to cope. And I says, cope? I'm not here to cope. I'm here to take over. I actually said that. And you're like, <laughs> 
the man was back in his chair looking at me. Who is this mad joke? So he says, well, I'll tell you what then. We'll let you do a two-week writing course and we see how you get on with that. Mm. And it was, whoa, did I struggle on that writing course. Yeah. I barely scraped through with 54%. But it was like, it was the, it was the first step of many baby steps consistently hard yeah. working hard over time and that's the key yeah. it's not a magic wand and it's it's not easy but it's simple it's just showing up every single day yeah i love that you know you scraped by but you kept going you know yeah. i love that it's like because some people will give up and they say oh no i can't do it i barely scrape by i must leave but you kept going because you wanted something you wanted something for yourself and yeah. your new your new life we'll call Me it your life. second chance second yeah second chance yeah so, yeah, I'm watching the time now, Brian, because it's great. As I say, we keep chatting anyway. But I always talk about um, four rooms to wellness. And I'm always emphasizing this for people. You know, it's not just the physical. It's not just the mental that we have the emotional and the spiritual side, whatever that means to people. So I say we need to visit them on a daily room. So imagine you're like a house and you go in, you open the windows in each of the rooms. So I'd say to people, when is the last time you opened the window in your emotional room? And they go, oh, Jesus, I'm that's closed shut and the curtains are yeah. pulled. I'm not going nails, there. Nails yeah. And all yeah. Of <laughs> yeah. So for me, it's like that is our whole person, you know, and yeah. it's getting to know each of those rooms. And again, you can be the interior designer, what you want to fill them with. So I lay it down very simply for people and say, what's in that room, that emotional room or the mental room or in the physical room? So what do you want to put it with? What do you want to take out, recycle and get rid of? And just keep it very simple. And people find it very hard to answer. So I'm asking you those same questions today. So your four rooms to wellness. So we'll go with the physical first. Okay. so what do you feel your physical self, your physical well-being for you? I know you love to run. I've seen your pictures of running in Phoenix Park and places. Yeah, so I'm, I'm, in my, I'm in my gym gear now as, as we speak and something that I do, so I do run, I run twice a week, but that's not for everyone. And when I got injured, I started to implement other tactics. So I went to the gym before that. I always went to the gym at six o'clock in the morning. It was real 5 a.m. club, up at 5 a.m. into the gym at six. But I met my girlfriend and she's having none of that. Yeah. No, you're not going to bed at half nine. You're no. staying up, you're on my timetable. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I didn't win that race. So but, no. but COVID-19 kicked in as well. So. I, I got weights into me thing. So what, what I do, and it, this is like, it's this is called, this. my motivation levels have been crazy throughout COVID, like crazy high. And it's because of in a psychological principle I've used. It's called the granny rule of motivation. Mm-hmm. And it literally means if you eat your cabbage, I'll give you chocolate. Yes. You the bad. If you do the bad thing, you get yeah. good thing. So what I've been doing for work, and it helps me to work if I'm writing, if I'm doing creating content on the computer, I do that for 20 minutes to a half an hour. And then I reward myself. I, I, I find uh, hit classes, exercise is very rewarding. But I also find social media rewarding. I'm not browsing, browsing aimlessly, mm. I'm going on checking my own stuff. And we all like getting likes. It's just the nature of the brain. Like if you say mm. you don't get likes, you say your brain isn't really working right because we do like social connection. We're social animals. So I would jump on 20 minutes on that, do me hit class for six minutes and then jump check social media for four minutes, have a look at what's going on and jump, alarms going off and jump back in. Mm-hmm. But what I found is I when I'm exercising, insights about me work jump in, because it's only six minutes, I can push hard. Then I get me little reward, the chocolate of the granny roll of motivation because one of the most robust psychological principles is is reinforcement. If you reinforce a behavior with a reward, it will increase in in thing. And that's what motivation is. Like liking something is, it gets rewarded. That's the essence of it. And what I found is I've just been increasing my motivation to work, my motivation to exercise. So it's crucial for me. I would, for the physical room, I'd exercise at least five times a day. Now I'd have lighter days and other days, 
but I use it to keep a clear head and I go running twice a week as well. But I think weight training is very important as well. Resistance training is very important as well, but physical exercise is critical for me. Very good. I like that. Yeah. And I like, I love that the granny rule of motivation. Yeah. And I think everyone will know that it's like, if you eat your dinner, you'll get the biscuits. Yeah. yeah, yeah I love yeah. that. Brilliant. <laughs> so your mental room then as well, your thought process. And I know you obviously worked on yourself quite a lot and still are working on yourself. Um, so people would ask maybe, okay, how do you stay motivated? What thought process do you go through you know how do you switch that thought you know if it comes in if you have that thought so how do you really motivate your mind to let the physical body do its work yeah the one thing so i think that's uh, bi-directional as well so i think if you look after the physical body it helps your mind as well like you'll be releasing the endorphins there you'll be just energetically charged so i think that's crucial they, they, they all interact but something i do as well like let's say reading books i love reading new material I love listening to podcasts. At the moment, I'm reading a book called Unwinding Anxiety. That's a book I have here. I have a Kindle over in my girlfriend's house. It's Jordan Peterson. I'm, I'm obsessed with Jordan Peterson. I thought he was an idiot without ever read. I, I just get a vibe I got. And I said to myself, I've never even read his work. I listened to anything. I'm going to check him out. Yeah. And he's actually, I think, is intellectually brilliant. His truth, mm. his way of reasoning is sensational. So I'm reading about him at the moment. I am, um, I'm listening to Joe Rogan podcast in my car. Um, about different things as well. And I'm on, I'm on a, in a, another area at the minute around books where I'm sort of going into policy and different ways, mm. more expansive thinking instead of just psychology and the, yeah. the human, the, the number one. So I always keep but, but the key with everything is that if I'm reading a book or listening to a podcast and I'm not, it's not, I'm not, it's not vibing with me, I drop it. I've dropped yeah. so many books that have led me onto other books because I remember walking into Manute Library the first time and I was obsessed with learning. And I says, oh my God, millions of books. How I come like I haven't got time to learn all this. So it says, I'm only going to spend my time on things that inspire me and motivate me. Mm. So around that, and I think the essence of that learning helps me to think better as well. Like it's like, it's like, it's like you're, you're, you're flexing a thinking muscle and the more you think, and I love reading the interdisciplinary things as well and putting ideas from different disciplines together. Like I love putting neuroscience and behavioral psychology together and mixing them up with spirituality as well. That's the, the stuff I teach myself. So I think staying motivated is following your passion, following what vibes with you is is really key. And 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 there's 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 motivate there's motivational factors. I don't want to go into the depths of that as well. But sometimes it's like if you're procrastinating, just just say, I just one page, just yeah. write a blog, or just write ten words, mm. just do something, just make a start. That's the key piece as well. Yeah, very good. Love that. And I think for anybody, reading is it's like feeding your physical body with food. It really it, is. We all need that inspiration. We do need people's insights, humor, you know, their life experiences. I think all of that really lends to me. Anytime I read anybody's book, it's kind of like I can visualize. I'm very visual. I can visualize the person. I can visualize where they are, even if it's an awful traumatic event. You know, it gives me an insight into that person and an understanding of what they're going through and now what their message is, you know. So I think that's for me, that's the way I would work out my mental processes. And then I would come to the emotional. Um, So the emotional side for me, I'd say to people, it's being aware. And we talked about awareness and I'm a huge one about awareness, awareness of self, how we feel, what we're thinking, what we're doing each day and have a purpose in doing that. And whatever it is, it can be sitting out enjoying the sunshine. It doesn't matter. But the emotional awareness, and we talk about emotional intelligence and a lot of people are not aware of their emotions and that's why I kind of asked you a few times how did you feel Brian and yeah you know 
to me, it is so yeah. important because a lot of people don't right. even check in with that emotional self. Yeah. So how would you value your emotional awareness on a day to day basis? Oh, I would value it. I, I put a lot of value in my emotional awareness and it's something that I always practice. Um, and especially over the last two or three years, I, I would have been aware. I would have had an um, um, what's the words? A preference, a, a large preference for positive emotions yeah. in the first five years <laughs> of my recovery. But life is not all uh, all about the roses. Like sometimes there's ups and downs. That's part of life as well. And especially since I met my girlfriend and we're we're crazy about each other and everything's going great. Um, but like challenges come in there as well. Mm. But my ability to feel me emotions just grows by the day. Like, and I name me emotions. Like I, I think at one, one point, like when, when I got clean, I remember I was doing focus groups as well. How do you feel? And I intellectualize everything. So it's mm. been a huge road for me to realize what an emotion is. And for me, an emotion, it comes from the body. It's, it, it's, a, it's the body's reaction usually to a tar, mm. or the body's reaction to, to the environment. So for me, it happens in the body. So if I'm trying to feel how I feel, I start with the body and try to feel it from there. Mm. But I think I've become very aware of my emotions. I think I'd be very aware of other people's emotions as well. I think that grows from learning about your own emotions, but mm. self observation is the key it's the core practice in my life mindful self-observation and i mindfully observe my thoughts feelings and bodily sensations and i do that on a constant basis and it's really interesting that over the years the last couple of years people have actually said it to me you're always looking inwardly all the time and i said it's just become a default for me mm. and i always talk about the, st the space between stimulus and response it's, mm. it's victor frankl's great words there's a space between something happening and your response to it and usually that's an emotional reaction but there is a space between like anger and fear after something bad happens. So if you can catch that in full flight, you can respond in emotional in a, in a, in a, in a rational manner. Yeah. So you don't get angry. You don't get fearful. You don't go into an anxiety mode. And I think being aware of your emotions or your reaction, your emotional reaction to events and being able to catch that and temper it is absolutely critical. And it's, 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 there's a line I love. It's not, I've met talking about a couple of me life lessons today, but if the mind and gut are conflicted, the mind is telling lies. Yeah. But at the same time, you are not your, you are not your thoughts. We, a lot, most people know that, but you are not your emotions either no. because you can have good days. You can have bad days. So on the bad day, you're not depressed. You're not anxious. You're having a bad day. It's something that passes. So I think it's really important to recognize that everything passes good and bad, happy days, bad days, they all pass. So it's, it's, it's an awareness of that as well. It's, 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 it's a tricky one. It's a tricky one. Because when yeah. emotions are ramped up, that's when awareness goes. <laughs> yeah, well, it is. And maybe that's part of our human experience. Yeah. You know, I think that's part of our learning because we've had those big highs and big lows. And I'd say to people, instead of saying, I am happy or I am sad or I am angry, it's say, I feel that, you know, because yes. you're not identifying yourself with the emotion. You're just saying, I'm feeling that feeling and it's just it, yeah. for now, you know. And I say, um, emotions are energy in motion they're all moving it takes 90 seconds for anger to move through the body and how long do we hold on to it i say that about cravings as well yes yeah, like yeah. surf the urge surf the urge to speak out and get angry surf the urge to have that drink to have that yes it, it, crazy energy is the only last 90 yeah. seconds it's so critical yeah, yeah. Yeah. Love that. Thank you, Brian. And then the last one is spiritual. So I believe we're all spiritual be beings living in this human existence and that 
even without the physical body, that we are energy still, our consciousness still exists within energy because we are energy and it can't be destroyed. Yeah. So that's a hard one to, for people to comprehend. And that's where a lot of fear comes because it's just around my physical existence, you know? Yeah. So I'd say sometimes I like to step out of the physical and just be the spiritual for a little while, you yeah. know? That to me is an amazing experience because I'm letting go of all those attachments to the physical body and everything else it's attached to. Yeah. But for the spiritual side, I'd say to people, what are your values and your purposes? Who love that? So, so yeah, my values, I've, I've a very, I've a, a very structured values based system and that I guide all my decisions on in life. And if I think of the values that are around spirituality, so inner peace, so spirituality for me, you said energy, it's energy and awareness. When I think of spirituality, I think energy and awareness. Mm. So uh, the, one of my core values around spiritual core values is inner peace. It's so critical like to have inner peace. I value inner peace and inner peace allows you to speak to your heart, to speak to your gut, so you don't get pulled around by the world and you're not a puppet, your, your strings being pulled. So inner peace is critical. Connection is another one as well. Like it really is the importance of connection in my life has just ramped up to ridiculous levels that of where, where of the value that I put on it beforehand. I think compassion is another important one as well. And I, I kind of, not that I struggle with compassion. I'm not naturally, I tend, I think I came from the addiction. I think it's something that I'm still working on. I value compassion in other people. I value humility and composure in other people as well. But sometimes I feel I, I, I'd be like, oh, I really want to talk about myself. I'm not going to, but I'd like to. And it's like, yeah. I'm not naturally humble. And I don't like that about myself. It's a work in progress. I'm going to change that too. I'm not composed. I wouldn't say, call myself composed. I'm like, um, I, I'm enthusiastic and passionate. I love jumping in. I wouldn't be like the the Obama the the the, 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 the thing of composure, like you know. Yeah. So for me, compassion is there as well. I see really, really compassionate people, and I value it so much. I I don't think it's my calling to be more to be super compassionate because I don't feel um like obviously I have empathy and I have compassion mm. for other people as well. Like empathy is feeling other people's pain compassion i don't think i think i'm doing myself a disservice Sharon, as well because yeah. for me is feeling other people's pain and wanting to do something about it and i do that and i'm doing something about it i think because i don't want to do it on a one-to-one -one level because for many reasons i've done it for a while and it drained me it drains me energy and i can do more at a group level so i think compassion is definitely a core value and it is something i practice i think i'm doing myself a disservice there but no i don't think you're doing yourself a disservice i think what you've said is right you know sometimes when we're talking we think geez i'm not talking about myself good yeah and i love the fact that you explained empathy empathy is being able to understand or feel somebody else's pain yeah but if we're in that empathy mode constantly we're not helping anybody because we're just yes. sitting with them in that sorrow or grief or fear or whatever feeling it is. crap with them yeah. yes whereas compassion is kind of detaching yourself so you're right yeah. in a way brian it's, it's detaching yourself and saying i do understand how you're feeling you know and this is how i can help you it's as you said earlier on it may be just sitting there listening to them yeah. and letting, allowing them to be heard or maybe it's supporting them in whatever way is right. But sitting there, you know, and I'd say to people are always talking about, oh, us empathic souls. And I'm going, well, if you're all going to be empathic souls, you're all going to be sitting on the ground miserable. miserable Get yeah. up off your arses and do something yeah, for each that. other or to help each other. Yeah. So again, you know, people have a kind of a little bit of a misunderstanding about that. So I'm glad that you were clarifying it there. And that I think you're right about the compassion. So don't think you're doing yourself a disservice. You're detaching yourself from being stuck in the gutter. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that is. And I, I think it comes from my experience of being detached from my emotions that it's yeah. just, I, I feel I feel very, I, I don't feel like an authority in that area. You know that way? It's a, it's a weird thing. But I think the number one uh, value around uh, spirituality is energy. I think like I am ruthless with my energy. It's the reason why I exercise. It's why I read all these books. It's why I eat healthy. It's why I have a morning routine, which includes meditation, gratitude, inner child work, affirmations, visualization. That's my five, a 10 minute routine every morning. And it energizes me to act and to be happy in the world. And really, I think energy for me is the currency of life. And I think it's really, really critical. Yeah, yeah. it's um, they'd be definitely the spiritual values. Yeah, I love that. So we're going to finish on this because I said I'd love to ask you more, but we are gone over the time, Brian, and I do value your time and know that you were great to come on. But what is your calling in life? Oh, wow. It's, it's interesting. Another value which I was going to add in there, so it's great that I didn't, yeah. is really around service because you mentioned purpose. So my, my purpose, my mission in life, I often say, so this is me, mission statement, I suppose, like with a relentless belief that we are what we think, my mission is to help pe- show people that change is possible, demonstrating actionable steps to a lived experience. So really my aim, my purpose in life is giving service to other people. And I suppose that's, a, that's like a value and a purpose in terms of spirituality mm-hmm. as well. And it's showing people, so doing really what I'm doing, but I I think the number one thing when I like I started my life at 40 years of age again my financial life no house no nothing like starting from scratch at that age so I need to get myself build a business get myself financially stable but it's going good and I'm hoping to do that pretty quick and I think when I'm in a position what I really want to do is to find the secret sauce that can help the youth of today to access the tools that we know work because they're not interested in them at the moment they might even know they work but they're not going to implement them so how can I move the needle on that? And I'd love to get a policy level and to really yeah. move that. And I think it's about changing the ideology around it in terms of young people. I think they need to speak to each other about it. I think influencers, I don't like the word influencers, but I think people in authority who they place importance on play a role as well. But it's, it's and, and taking it away from the negative, like it's not to get better and to get away from anxiety. It's not to survive, it's to thrive. I don't still practice morning routines and mental health things to survive. I'm, I'm the happiest person I know. I say this all the time yeah. and I want to get happier and I want to get more energy to help even more people. So really it's about thriving in life. And it, it allows you, like if you're in that space where you're happy with yourself, like you will reach out and take chances, take risks. Mm-hmm. And them kinds of risks have paid massive dividends in my life like i remember reaching out to sports people to actors and mm. businessmen amy huberman dara o'brien i've mentors in business now who help me about decisions if i'm struggling with something i can just call on someone who i reached out to just boldly by and loads of them said no i had loads yeah. of no's but like who cares i can't even remember the no's yeah. so it's really about putting yourself out there into the world like you only get one life at the end of the day so go out and take a chance. And I'll be taking a lot of chances when it comes to helping young kids and putting this out there. Like, so that's probably me calling in life, but it's still one of me callings that's out. I don't know what yeah. to I was going to say, we can't, <laughs> that's what we can't just say that's going to be it. Yeah. Because, um, I always talk about our purpose changes daily and it changes yeah. with different things and what we experience in life. Um, your calling in life is a beautiful calling because it would one of the things that is so important in our youth. And because, again, you have the experience of with the addiction, that is something that young people will able to resonate with you and say, yeah. OK, well, I've tried it and I liked it and I went kind of might, but how can I stop? And everyone, you know, all of these different questions. Yeah. So I love that. And again, I, you know, and I even posted about this yesterday. Our energy attracts what we radiate, what we send out. 
So the way your energy is at the moment, Brian, and it is vibrant and it's alive and you are very curious and you are passionate about things. And that is all flowing from your energy and going out there, not just in, you know, the podcast and everything else, but people that even kind of now meet you, they're going to feel that before you even speak at all. So I think you're drawing to you what you actually want to do in your life. Because I just say that to people, sometimes you're calling a life come towards you and it knocks on your door before you're kind of going, what? This is, yeah. how did this happen? Yeah, yeah. Thanks for saying that, Shane. I appreciate that. But you don't know what's around the corner. No. You don't know who's looking from afar. Yes. Like, I've yeah. often had so many people, I've been following you for three years and yeah. I want, I felt like sending you an email or it's, it's crazy. Like it yeah. really is. It really yeah. is. Yeah. Just leave the door open for every yeah. opportunity. Yeah. That's what I do say. Yeah. That's yeah. Brian, thank you so much. I really appreciate the time. Love the chat. And um, I can wish you only continued success in everything that you're going to do. And I'll be looking out to see what next inspirational event or writing or whatever you're going to give. And good luck with your PhD. Thank you. That's next. Next on next ticks box has to be the PhD. Get the yeah. pieces out of the way. This was an absolute pleasure. I'm energized. So much energy. Oh, this so good. thank you so much. And I, you know, I'd love to have you back on there. Uh, I'd love to have you back in the radio show sometime in the summer as well. I really have, I have so many questions. So many areas I- I'd love to explore. <laughs> So great we'll, we'll mark you know, that up too that's definitely the energy is attracting because we're two great chatters and definitely. we're very curious <laughs> <laughs> definitely thanks so much Sharon it's thank you pleasure. Brian you're welcome you. so everybody if you want to check out Brian www.brianpenny.com and you'll find Brian on Instagram Twitter and LinkedIn and his book Bonus Time is available in Easton's Ireland and you can also check it out on his website so, Brian, as I said, there was loads of questions um, I had to ask, but there's only so much you could talk about in one day. So I look forward to chatting to Brian again, hopefully in the future. So thank you, everyone, for listening. And thank you again to Brian Penny.